Let's look at God's Word together in 1 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Now, the people, and possibly us, as we come to this chapter, we might be thinking this is a retirement speech. Samuel is an old man. The people now have a king, Saul. Samuel must be stepping aside, right? But that's actually not what's about to happen. This is not a retirement speech. Samuel is actually only giving up one of his roles as a leader. This will be his last judgment as a judge. And then after this speech, there will be a new leadership dynamic in Israel, and that leadership dynamic will continue throughout the age of the kings. There were actually three leadership offices in the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And what's interesting is that Samuel loosely functioned as a leader in all three of those roles. But now he will only continue to serve as God's prophet and God's priest. Saul will now function as king, uh, replacing the judge system. And after Samuel, the roles of prophet and priest will become more distinct, so we'll have three separate roles from here on out. Okay, I just thought that was important to kind of explain what's going on. All right, verse 3. Here I am. Now, if you remember, those are the words that Samuel spoke as a boy when God called him to service. Here I am. Remember that? Um, So, kind of a throwback in his speech. He just kind of throws that out. Hey, it's my claim to fame, Samuel. Um, Testify against me before the Lord and before His anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Samuel here is using trial language. And he's going to use it throughout this speech. And there are actually two separate trials going on in the chapter. The first trial is the people versus Samuel. The people versus Samuel. Samuel defends his ministry. And it reminds me of the way the Apostle Paul defends his own ministry in the New Testament. Asking, have I wronged you? Have I I been a bad leader? Have I cheated you? Samuel, of course, took only what God had commanded be given for the priests. But I want you to notice the emphasis in his words on money or possessions. 
And Paul does the same thing in his defense of his own ministry. And the assumption seems to be that bad leaders take. They use people. They are motivated by selfish gain. And that is universally true even in the church. Especially in the American church where we have pastors with networks and the t- net worths in the tens of millions, right? A little strange when you read the Bible. And this is why I think it's extremely important that we as a church be transparent as we are, I think, about how we steward people's gifts to this church. It's also why we don't spiritually abuse people into giving to the church. I try to be very careful with that. Please hold me accountable. Jesus cleared the temple with a whip because worship was being used as a means to exploit God's people. May that never be said of us. Okay, And I think that's kind of what Samuel is also saying in chapter 12. And now the people respond to Samuel, verse 4. This is a trial, okay? And they are responding as witnesses. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So the first trial is already over. Okay, very quick. The verdict is given. Samuel is innocent. He has finished well as a judge. But now Samuel leads a second trial. And this trial is a little bit longer and a little bit different. And we're going to call it God versus the people. Okay? God versus the people. Now stay with me. I'm going to read a long passage beginning in verse 6. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that He performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and He sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of your enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. 
And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Notice that Samuel provides all the evidence, all the historical evidence in this trial. And then he declares the verdict. And then he issues a judgment. And the people, in this case, are given no chance to speak. Did you notice that? The verdict is this. God is faithful and His people are not. God is vindicated and Israel is condemned. And they don't get a chance to speak. And immediately, Samuel calls down rain and thunder. And this was extremely uncommon at that time of year. Could have ruined the entire crop, may have, it doesn't tell us. And that's why the people are afraid. But this was not as bad as it could have been, right? Okay, We already know some things about God and what He's able and capable and willing to do at times. He doesn't send an evil army on this day. He doesn't send poisonous snakes to bite His people on this day. He didn't send a flood. Okay, No one dies today. Instead, he's giving them a very strong warning and a chance to repent. And the people respond. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So the people admit that they are guilty. Verse 20, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. 
So Samuel says, do not be afraid. Do you know that that is the most frequent command in the whole Bible? Do not fear. Why does he tell them not to fear? He says, well, you've done all this evil. That's true. You're guilty. But don't stop following the Lord. In other words, he's saying, you are sinners. You have failed but you don't have to stay in your sin. You don't have to keep making these same decisions not to trust God. So again, like we talked about last week, there is hope for change. God takes us as He finds us, but He never leaves us where He found us. Amen? But what I want to do today is I want, to, I want to show you from the rest of this text, where does change begin? How does it work? Because Samuel actually tells us. Verse 21. It says, And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. I want to suggest to you that this is the heart of the issue for us, for humans. Okay? Empty things is a reference to idolatry. Not just false gods, but in this case, wanting something besides God. It's anything that we are trusting for provision or deliverance Besides God. For Israel, in this case, it was comfort and self-rule and the desire to be like everyone else. Because that's why they wanted the king, right? And we can look for these empty things in our lives by focusing on, in our text, the words profit and deliver. Okay, I'm going to ask them as questions. I just want you to kind of reflect on your life and think about these questions. The first is, What do you think will profit you? Or another way to say that is, what will make your life good? Second, what do you think will deliver you or rescue you? Okay? So... One question is focused on how to get better circumstances for myself. And the other question is focused on how to get myself out of bad circumstances. Profit or deliver. And if the answer to either question, making my life better, getting out of the bad, if the answer to either of those questions is something other than God, Samuel calls it useless. Empty. Because an idol is something that promises us better circumstances, but the promises are empty. And I think it's important to recognize that Israel went a long time ignoring God's word on this particular issue. Samuel has been warning them for years that their desire for a king 
was a direct rejection of God. And they are just now admitting to God and to Samuel, yeah, that was a sin. We messed up. After they got what they wanted. And isn't that how it often works? And even though they call it sin, notice that their repentance doesn't result in, and you know what? Take Saul back. We don't need him. <laughs> right? We're good with, with the judge thing. Let's just stay with that. Let's keep Samuel. Saul, you go back to being a farmer. We're good. No, right? They don't, they don't actually give up Saul. They, they admit that it's sin, but nothing really changes and I think that's the lesson. I think that's the, the most important lesson here. Well, one of them. Idolatry is powerful and insidious. We often do not realize how enslaved we are to our own desires. We don't realize how desperate we are to get what we want. We don't see the danger in these things. And it, the truth is, many of the things that we want aren't bad in and of themselves, right? Even the king, we talked about that. It's a question of motives. It's a question of the heart. We don't want to believe that the things we want are empty. And that is the danger. And I think that's the heart of the issue for us. But I think a more important question even than that is for us to ask, what is the heart of the issue for God? Okay. What is the heart of the issue for God? Why does God care so much that we are giving our hearts to these empty things? Samuel tells us that as well. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. So according to Samuel, the heart of the issue for God in all of this is His glory. That's the heart of the issue for God. And he says, God will always finish what God starts because God's glory is at stake. And He is not going to share His glory with the empty idols that you people keep trying to to attach your hearts to. That's what Samuel is saying. He's not going to let his people stay committed to things that will not profit or deliver them because his glory is at stake. This verse is absolutely packed with theology that will completely change the way you think about your life. I'm going to give you just four things, okay? Briefly. First is, God is not going anywhere. The Lord will not forsake His people. He's not going to walk away from His children. He's not going to abandon us. He will finish what He starts because that's who God is. Okay, that's number one. Number two, we do not own ourselves. It says very clearly, we are His people. God owns us. 
We belong to him. My life is not my own. Your life is not your own. If you are making plans and decisions without considering the word of God and the will of God, then you are missing the point of your life. Number three. Apparently we exist for God's glory. In other words, I'm not on this planet for myself or to make a name for myself. I'm not here to make my name great. I'm not here to spread my legacy, to leave my legacy. I am here to make God famous. I am here for His name. I am here for His sake. I'm here to participate in the family business of God for Him, for, 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 for His sake, not for mine. And then finally, all of this is true because God wants it to be true. In other words, it's true because, as the text says, He was pleased to make it true. His faithfulness to us, His ownership of our lives, um, His uh, purpose in my life for His glory, His plans for me, all of that is true because God says so. I'm not creating this reality for my life. I'm not writing my own story. This life and everything that comes with it is a gift from God to me. That's how the Bible describes the life of a believer, right? God is not part of my life by choice. I'm part of His universe and now part of His family by His choice. In other words, God is not orbiting me. I'm orbiting Him. Now, do you see how all of this will change your life if you believe it? And how it affects kind of the meat of the text that we're looking at this morning? I want you to look at how Samuel ends his speech. Verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He's done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So Samuel says... I'm going to do my part. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to teach you. But I can't make you follow. And this is the frustration of every preacher throughout history, right? All we can do is preach the word and pray for you, pray with you. Everything else is in the hands of the Lord. And then Samuel ends with this warning. He says, fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully. Otherwise, you will be swept away, both you and your king. Now, some of us, some of us may be uncomfortable with the idea that the Bible right here is using 
fear of punishment as a motivator. Because that's what he's doing, right? I mean, that's what he says. But you've got to understand, the Bible does this very often and unapologetically. And as a parent of children, I understand. Okay, I can explain all the reasons why my children should obey me as a father. And I want them to do it because they love and trust me, right? But sometimes the only thing that keeps them from worse harm is fear of consequences. Because we're stubborn people. And yet, you've got to ask the biblical... This is, a, this is an important question. I've got to deal with it because it's in the text. Is there a contradiction here? Because a few verses earlier, if you remember, Samuel commanded us, and I told you, it's the most common command in the Bible. He says, do not fear. He commanded us, don't fear. And now he says, fear the Lord. What do you do with that? I want to suggest to you that the difference, the key word, is this word right here, only. Okay? Only. It's there in the Hebrew like it is in the English. Only fear the Lord. How should we think about that? Well, let me ask you a question. What is the purpose of pain? Why do humans experience pain? Okay. Why do you feel physical pain? Biologically, pain tells us that something is wrong, right? If we have an illness or an injury that needs to be treated, your nerve endings send a message to your brain to let you know something needs to be done about this problem. Okay. If I touch a hot stove, not realizing that it's hot... The pain prevents me from leaving my hand on the stove and letting it burn worse, right? So pain, as difficult as it is to deal with, serves a purpose. Fear in the brain serves a similar purpose. It's there to warn us about danger. Biologically, my brain is hardwired to experience fear when something dangerous is happening. Now, sometimes that goes haywire and causes us to fear things that we shouldn't fear. That's not rational. But rightly understood, it's something that's actually very helpful. The Bible then, I think, is trying to convince us that the greatest danger we face is actually God Himself. That's what this is about. That's why he says, do not fear, and then like two verses later, except fear the Lord. That you should fear. If we're being commanded not to fear, except to fear God alone, then that has to be the point. The greatest danger we face is actually God Himself. If something else causes fear then we are giving it too much power. 
And it may actually tell us something about those empty things that we're worshiping. Because fear is an indicator of what we worship. And this has always been our dilemma since Adam and Eve. We think that living an unhappy life is the worst thing that can happen to us. Or maybe living a short life. But according to the Bible, not even death is actually the worst thing that can happen to us. Listen to the words of Jesus. If you don't believe me, or the Old Testament, let's look at Jesus. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that word means exactly what you think it means. I hope you know what it means. And Jesus talks about it more than anybody else. And at the end of 1 Samuel 12, there is a clear threat. He says that those who reject God will be swept away. That phrase, swept away, was used in Genesis 19 when the angels begged Lot, Abraham's nephew and his family, they begged him to run from Sodom and not to look back lest they be swept away with the wicked. Okay? Think of it maybe as a tornado cutting a path through town. If you get caught in that path, you will be swept away. Okay? Now, if you know the story, you know that Lot's wife looked back, and guess what happened? God killed her. Why, practically speaking, did that happen? It was because she feared losing her home and her way of life more than she feared God's wrath. Or to say it another way, she loved the things of the world more than she trusted the God who made her. You see what I'm telling you? If that seems unfair, then I would just simply remind you of the one last thing Samuel said there. He said, Consider what great things God has done for you. All the salvation that He chronicled for them. All the protection. All the provision that had been given by God throughout the history of Israel. All of it had a purpose. And we now can look back and we understand what the point of it was. It was all to foreshadow the person and work of Jesus. The protection, the provision. All of it in Christ. And this is, brothers and sisters, the good news. This is the linchpin of this text, I think. Jesus Himself was swept away with the wicked in our place. That's the gospel here. So when we read Samuel's words, as Christians, the response, yes, I mean, we fear God in the sense that He is holy and not to be trifled with, right? Even as Christians, we understand this. But as a believer who believes that I'm safe in Jesus Christ, 
I'm not afraid of eternal punishment. I take that seriously. But where my mind goes when I read swept away is this. My king was swept away with the wicked so that us, the unfaithful, could be counted among the faithful. He placed himself willingly in the path of God's wrath because the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make us a people for himself. Amen. Let's pray.